I'm Cathy Walker from the Girls' Day School Trust, the GDST. We're a family of 25 girls' schools across the UK. We were founded by women for girls 150 years ago, and to this day, we remain experts in educating and inspiring girls. On each episode of Raise Their Up, we welcome guests who are experts in their fields to share their insights and to create the ultimate guide to raising and empowering girls, women, and everybody else. We welcome the stories and advice that help us as parents, carers, educators, and friends to instill the confidence and drive in girls to become the change makers that the world really needs. On this episode of Raise It Up, my guest is politician and former cabinet minister, Baroness Saida Varsi. The best way to make change is not through protest, it's through participation. If you feel passionate enough about change and you want to create a better world, then get involved, but get involved with your eyes wide open because it is a ruthless world. As the first Muslim woman to serve in cabinet under Prime Minister David Cameron, she used her position to educate and speak out on issues around Islamophobia, extremism and racial equality. She's currently featuring as a political mentor alongside former number 10 spin doctor Alistair Campbell in Channel 4's new Make Me Prime Minister. From the GDST, this is Razor Up and this is Baroness Saida Barsi. And I think again, one of I the thought, things what's going through her that's what we're giving, isn't it? As a parent, we're giving our love. Razor Up. Baroness Varsi, thank you so much for agreeing to come onto this podcast and be our guest. We are completely thrilled to have you here. Thank you for having me, Cathy. So um, let's just dive straight in and say that we are recording this episode the day after Rishi Sunak, Sajid Javid and others uh, resigned from Boris Johnson's cabinet. And we've just heard that he has also resigned. Now, you yourself resigned from the cabinet over David Cameron's policy regarding the Gaza-Israel conflict. And afterwards, you were quoted as saying, I always said that long after life in politics, I have to be able to live with myself for the decisions I took or the decisions I supported. Can we ask for your take on that today? please? Yeah, I mean, we are in unprecedented times, Cathy, to have over 50 resignations from a cabinet to try and force the prime minister to resign is something that we've never seen before. The office of prime minister and the office of a cabinet minister is something that is greater than an individual. And you have to, when you are in those offices, um, abide by collective responsibility, support uh, policies, and conduct yourself in a way which effectively acknowledges that you are a public servant, you are a servant of the public. And when you get to a point when you are no longer able to do that, either because of your own principles and your views, which I couldn't at a time when I was in the Foreign Office, when I felt that as somebody who'd been a human rights lawyer and who fundamentally believed in international accountability through the International Criminal Court and believed in the process of the United Nations, when I felt that as a country, we were making policy which was not in accordance with our own values, I had no option but to say, on principle, I am stepping away because I can't pollute my office by conducting myself in a way and acting on behalf of my country, which I felt was not in our country's best interests. And I think that's the situation that we've got with the Prime Minister, where there is a very clear sense that he has not been acting in the national interest, that the way he has conducted himself has not been for public interest, but actually has been for personal and private interest. And that goes all the way back to party gate contracts during COVID, you know, the covering up and not taking seriously concerns of uh, sexual kind of behavior of, of our colleagues. Um, and I think it's really important, therefore, that we learn from this and we have a really clear discussion about what public service is all about. It is not easy, Cathy, to be in public life is not easy. To be in politics is not easy. It is, you know, I've said often it's a 
pretty lonely, godforsaken world. And if you're going to go into it, then make sure you go into it for the right reasons. Yes. Make sure that you wake up and you understand what it is that you're trying to change in the way and what you're giving up by putting yourself in that public space. That's a fantastic intro to our to our first official question. Thank you. Because you know, you have said politics is a really ruthless place to be, and especially as a woman. So how did you get into it? How, what drew you to a career in politics? I think for me, politics had always been around me and that sense of social justice had uh, been something I talked about around the dinner table with my parents and, and it was was something that I was part of when I was at university in student politics. And I think there were a number of things that really defined my politics. First of all, I think the release of Nelson Mandela from Robin Island and the end of the apartheid. And then I think in my 20s, the war in the Balkans, and particularly the genocide in Srebrenica, you know, on not far from our shores in a place where we'd watched Torville and Dean perform the Bolero at the Winter Olympics. And here it was now this country was under siege and, and neighbours were killing each other and slaughtering people just for, for their identity. So who I am and how I belonged and fit into the world in which I lived was something that had always been a part of my politics. And I think post-September the 11th, where having probably come to terms with being a comfortable British Asian, there were now question marks about whether or not I could be Muslim and British and belong here. My instinct was to to leave. And I left Britain for about a year. And I, I, I suppose I ran away from what I thought was a another battle that I felt we needed to fight to have equal worth and equal value. But having stayed away for a year, I I felt I needed to come back and play my part. So it has to be something that burns so deep in your tummy that you wake up every morning and think, this goes to the core of who I am and what my country is, and I need to play my part to make a difference. Because if you haven't got that level of sustainability in your views and your passion for change, then God, there are better professions to choose than to be in politics. Why would you do it? <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. I think there are lots of people around uh, the country and indeed around the world asking themselves that same question. Um, you you mentioned earlier on, um, you know, the, the references to the sexual misconduct that has happened at a very high level in, in British politics. What has your experience been as a woman within that political world? How have you overcome the challenges that, that came alongside it, especially in a, a period when you were in cabinet? It was a long time before the Me Too period, wasn't it? It was. And, and I think that, I think for me, my experience has been slightly different. First of all, because I always felt that there were enough challenges being a woman and being a woman of colour and therefore conducted myself in the workplace in a way which was probably quite harsh. I, I had quite a kind of steely exterior and wouldn't particularly let people into that space because I think the last thing I wanted was to put myself in a position where I felt that I would be vulnerable. You know, I felt vulnerable enough being a woman and being a woman of colour and I certainly didn't want that kind of the sexualized space that often Parliament can be uh, to be part of that. I don't drink and I think that helped. Um, I don't frequent the bars, which I think helped. And I think socially I'm an introvert, which helped. And therefore, you know, I did spend I think even well before politics, even as a lawyer in a pretty male-dominated space, I think the way I dealt with it was never to get into that kind of relaxed space, which would allow people to kind of think that it was okay to behave in this way. And it's terrible that as a woman, that's the way I've had to conduct my life 
say to my girls often and my husband talks about it often and he says you know your kind of resting face is your off face you know which is do not come to me do not speak to me do not engage with me until I realize you want to engage I want to engage with you and almost kind of conducting yourself I mean I think the kind of public me now is more the real me and I think I'm much more relaxed Mm. but it's a shame that I've had to get older and uglier to feel that I'm now in a space where I can be much more relaxed in public life rather than the 20 something year old me which which felt that the way to deal with it was just to have a you know kind of like I said an angry get lost face all the time Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that there are lots of women listening who, um, perhaps like you and me, were in our twenties and in, in in the nineties, and the sense of needing to compete with the lads uh, and be just yeah. as big and bad as they were. And thank goodness, um, our young women are not growing up uh, within that same um, culture. Um, let me ask you: You were the first Muslim to serve in cabinet, and you, you know you've just told us that after uh, 9/11, you you just felt the need to get away. When you came back, did you feel that you had to be representative of all Muslims? It must have come with you know pressure and prejudice that you must have felt you had to bat away single handedly as as such a high profile person. Yeah, I mean, I I I don't think I went in there to represent, but I think by default I did feel like there was a spotlight on me in public life, and the way I conducted myself was therefore going to be reflective of all Muslims, which was awful. I also think that the way I conducted my politics was seen through that prism, and I often used to say that you know when I talk about the NHS, I'm a Tory. When I talk about education, you know, I'm a Tory. When I talk about anything else, I'm a Tory. But when I talk about you know counterterrorism issues and foreign policy, I'm suddenly a Muslim. And so I did feel like, in a way, being of the Muslim faith made people see me through a different prism when we were talking about certain issues. And I think for me, one of the most hurtful moments in government was when I was, um, after the tragic uh, murder of Drummer Lee Rigby, the terrorist attack on our soil during the time that I was in government. I uh, was on the National Security Council and I was part of the team, uh, you know, cabinet colleagues that were putting together a response to what had happened. And a commentator, a right-wing commentator wrote that, you know, how can we deal with the war on terror when we have her, Baroness Barsi, the enemy at the table? Oh, my God. And I just remember thinking, you know, that even now as a privy councillor, as somebody who was sitting on the National Security Council, had access to the highest intelligence level in our country, still was being told, you do not belong, you cannot be trusted, you don't matter. And I remember thinking that is that, you know, you're still saying to me after the fact that, you know, my Paternal grandfather, my maternal grandfather had served in the British Indian Army. They were prepared to give their life for this country. The fact that, you know, I was serving my country at the top table, the fact that my only child is now back in uniform serving on the front line for this country. Despite all of that, you're still saying to me, simply because of the religion I was born into, you cannot be trusted. And I remember thinking that, you know, that is really hurtful. And it it, it kind of reinvigorated me to carry on fighting the battle Mm. for equal worth and equal value. And it also gave me a great title for a book, The Enemy Within. Yes. How remarkable. Um, I'm slightly speechless. So in each episode of Razor Up, we go out to our GDST community to get some perspective on the matter at hand. And today I'm speaking to Alexis Douglas from Brighton Girls, where she is head of philosophy, ethics and research. 
Hi, Alexis. So we are talking to Baroness Saidavarsi about her current programme on Channel 4, Make Me Prime Minister. Can you give us your perspective on what you're doing at Brighton Girls and how your students feel about the prospect of going into politics and developing their own political awareness? Well, we regard it as exceptionally important. So in the philosophy, religion and ethics department of Brighton Girls, we have an ethos of making our girls global change makers, encouraging them to be global change makers. Because women aren't represented enough at the top power tables in the world and the implications this has, and we want to change it for the future. So that means that from year seven, we encourage our students to be confident in finding their own voice, and speaking up in philosophy, religion, and ethics lessons. We start every lesson with a power pose to boost confidence. Students give a score out of 10 for their energy levels and their emotional barometer. And then we go into a thunk, which is a, a thinking exercise for which there's no right or wrong answer. So they get very confident of developing their thinking skills. And then from year seven, we ensure that a diversity of views are respected by the girls listening to each other's perspectives on philosophical questions, preparing the ground for them being confident, reflective thinkers. So what we're doing is giving them a space in which they're expected to contribute their own voice on tricky issues. This naturally transfers to politics, often a tricky issue. And I find there's a diversity of views. And so having a culture where each student's view is respected and can be listened to with openness so that students can understand different perspectives is really important. Being a multicultural global community, uh, students uh, actually teach each other different political perspectives from their own experiences and backgrounds. Tell us about your new programme, Make Me Prime Minister, in which you are, you know, you are looking for a new generation of, of politicians, which we so desperately need. Um, what's it like? So this new Channel 4 programme, what Alistair Campbell and I do is that we put aside our political differences, or at least try to put aside our political differences. Alistair is completely tribal, so I've often had to, you know, be told to pack it in. <laughs> um, and we try and find, we go back to core principles of what makes a good political leader. How do you find the people who are prepared to have the big ideas the character, the value, the teamship, you know, and the tenacity to be able to kind of, you know, put something really big in place, a vision for what Britain could look like. And to do it in a way which is rooted in, in principles and conduct themselves in public life in accordance with the Nolan principles and do it so in a dignified way and respect the rule of law and all these kind of values that generations have framed and defended. I just think it's a wonderful, wonderful program to allow us to do that. And it also, I think, gives people who sit at home and often say, I could do it better than that. I want to, you know, I could, <laughs> I could do that job. Give them a real life experience of saying, well, come along and let's run you through the, your paces. And, and you can see for yourself how, how this is done and how quickly people can start to make bad judgments and can be corrupted by power and can start playing the political game. Oh, wow. and, and we see all of that in the program. But at the end of it, you know, hopefully we see these leaders emerge who have the potential, I think, to absolutely be prime minister. Have you encountered any kind of uh, big egos in this show and, and have there been any kind of redemptive tales or people who've fallen at the first hurdle because of that? Uh, we have. And interestingly, what we have managed to find in the final with the three finalists are three people who absolutely are not there for the ego and for the power and who are not there for the entertainment. We've found some fabulous candidates. And that's why I think Alistair and I are in absolute agreement that we've got the three you know, best candidates in the final. 
And we've got three people who with the right team around them and the right kind of support and experience and learning could absolutely be prime minister. We can see each and every one of them being capable of leading the country better than what we've seen in the last few years. How exciting. So what's it like actually behind the scenes? I heard a, an anecdote once about the reason why everybody on The Apprentice is so horrible to each other is because they are under such pressure to perform day after day with no breaks. Is that what it's been like filming this series? It has been. And we don't quite create the political pressure, but there's a different kind of pressure that's created when you do television and, mm. and especially competition shows, which is what this is. And there's a prize at the end of it. And there's a cash prize at the end of it. And there's a prize to have a huge platform to have your views heard and for political parties, for you to showcase yourself to political parties. So if you're serious about getting your big idea out there, then this is, you know, this there are high stakes involved here. Um, and yeah, there have been moments when there have been pressure and there have been moments when I've had to intervene and kind of say to people, you play the man, not the ball here. And this is unacceptable. And politics is not just about, you know, winning that particular space. It's about the character you create and the team that you build and what you exude. Because, you know, going back to my resignation, it's about the person you can live with long after this political space has come and gone. You know, how did you conduct yourself in public life and what core values did you remain true to? Mm. There are times when I do want to kind of, yeah, give uh, give Alistair a bit of a slap. Well, that's what I want to ask you about. Um, well, was he your former adversary, um, Alistair Campbell? And is he like Malcolm Tucker in real life? Um, you said that you've set aside your political differences. Um, or is that the point? Because it, it makes for good telly if you're falling out all the time. Yeah, I, I think we are just our true selves. And, you know, Alistair's true self often is having a complete rant at the Tories. And there are moments when he goes on a massive tirade, you know, genuinely Malcolm Tucker style. Uh, and at the end of it, you know, I just have to in my Yorkshire way just go okay let's move on (laughs) because look partly because it's almost impossible to defend the stuff he says because it's actually true um and so you know this one moment where he just completely lost it and I said what do you want me to do defend it I can't I haven't got the words for it so you can just move on you're not going to get a fight here (laughs) so but you know what's been fascinating is that you know whatever our political differences are he did mastermind the three general election victories for the Labour Party. And what you cannot doubt is that in 97, I think when we were at the tired end of a tired Conservative government, there was real hope and optimism when Blair came in. I mean, the fact that, you know, he messed up things subsequently, and I think Iraq was one of his worst moments, you know, means that, of course, you know, I am disappointed in how it all ended up them, but we still can't take away from the fact that they won three successive general election victories at a time when in the Conservative Party, we didn't even think we were ever going to come back from it. And I give Alistair, you know, a lot of credit for that. So yeah, he's a fascinating individual to work with, but occasionally needs to just to be slapped down. We do have a few bust ups. Oh, (laughs) I bet. Well, I just really hope that they were captured on film. Um, I'm sorry, this is an irritating question because people do not ask it of men. Um, but you've been not only a, a woman in politics, but also a, a mother. And, and, and what I'd like to know is how did you approach it at a time when there were even fewer women in your professional area? 
than there are now? I think this is something that I've probably lived with all my life. I mean, you know, as a young lawyer, it, it was very similar. I specialized in criminal defense. So again, it was a very male dominated space. And I just got used to one working in probably male spaces, but white spaces. Again, I, I was often the first person of color who walked into a room. When I walked into cabinet, I was the only person of color around the cabinet table. When I walked into the chairman's office, I was the first person of color that we had had as chairman of a mainstream political party. So, you know, it was something that wasn't unusual. But I think as a mom, from day one, because from when she was very tiny, I, you know, I was in a, a fairly kind of stressful role. And then I was running my own business. I just took a decision that I w- it wasn't going to be either or, you know, I'm sure lots of moms won't agree with this, but kids are pretty resilient. You know, they're born in war zones and they're born in, you know, kind of boats coming the, crossing the channel. And I, you know, my child has been born into a good home where she has, you know, she's fed and she's clothed and she's loved. And now she has just texted me. That is really freaky. Okay. <laughs> Literally, as we're talking about her, text pops up. Well, and she's so she's remarkably successful as well. She is, and she's um, a, a military doctor. And you know, there and there were times when I just took her to wherever I went. I took her overseas. I took her up to the line of control. She was with me when I helped establish a charity. She went to court and sat and waited for me whilst I did bail hearings. She sat in the back of shadow cabinet meetings. And I just thought, well, this is just the way it's going to be. This is mom's world. Mom's doing it for a reason. You know, she's trying to give us a life, but also I was trying to make the world a better place. And she needed to know that in life, you you have to have purpose. And I think having that probably slightly dysfunctional upbringing, certainly my family think it was slightly dysfunctional upbringing, I think has given her a real sense of public duty and public service and purpose. And therefore, I think, fine, if that's what she's turned out like, something must have, you know, something must have been done right. Um, And every person makes their own choices. Look, I'm not here to make a judgment about how women choose to have children and how they choose to bring up those children and and whether they decide to become homemakers or stay-at-home moms or whatever they choose to be. I chose to do it this way because I knew, and now when she's left home and is living out her own adventure, I didn't want to be the mom who would turn around and say, I gave up my life for you and now I expect you to give up your life for me. I didn't want her to do that. You know, I've got friends and family who do make huge demands of their children because they do say things like, you know, I gave up my career to look after you and I was there for you. And and then somehow there's an expectation that you're going to do something in reverse. Mm. And I have no expectations of her other than for her to one, live her life to the max and have whatever adventures come her way. And secondly, to live it with purpose. And as long as she does those two things, then, you know, if I don't get to see her as much as I would want to, then so be it. But she's going to she's gonna embrace what this world offers her and give everything back. Obviously, you know, you, you are a fantastic uh, role model for um, young women who are interested in a, a career in politics. We talked just now about how there are a few more women in politics than there were when you were um, first entering this world. But the work of equality is is clearly not yet done. What is your take on getting more women and just more people from a diverse range of backgrounds into politics? I think, first of all, we've got to clean up politics. You know, if you look at what's happened over the last few months and women watching that will be thinking, really, do I want to be part of this world? Mm. You know, when you hear about sexual predatory behaviour against men mm. and women, actually, in yeah. Parliament, do people think this is the kind of place that I want? to inhabit um we've got to make the working hours better i mean we just had a vote in the house of lords where we've kept the working hours as they are and it should have changed you know the, the commons has got better but the lords is still kind of not 
conducive to good family living. Um, I think until we clean up politics and make it a professional space, I mean, I'm flabbergasted that the kind of stuff that people get away with in politics, they'd never get away with in a genuine kind of work environment. And so I think until the rules of the game are the same and the same HR principles apply and the same protections apply to people who work there, I think it is going to be harder to attract more women. Well, what are your our top piece of advice for any young people listening, considering a career in politics? I would say to young people that if you genuinely want to make a difference, then you have to participate. And however attractive it is to scream about things on Twitter or go on a protest, the best way to make change is not through protest, it's through participation. And it is a bit of a baptism of fire when you move from one to the other. But in the end, when you've got your hands on the levers of power, and if you stand up in Parliament, the House of Laws and the House of Commons, and you make a speech, it is far more powerful than standing on a soapbox outside. And so if you feel passionate enough about change and you want to create a better world, then get involved. But get involved with your eyes wide open because it is a ruthless world. And what will sustain you through that is your commitment to why you came in and really holding on to what your principles and core values are and making sure you never stray from that, whatever kind of incentives and exciting things are put in your way. Baroness Saeed Avarsi, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such an interesting and insightful chat at a really interesting moment in political history as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cathy. Um, it was an absolute privilege to speak to Baroness Saeed Avarsi. I have admired her from afar for many years and it is always wonderful also to speak to um, a fellow Northerner. I really loved hearing her tell it how it is about the way she perceives uh, politics um, at this current time. And since recording, I've had the chance to watch her programme, which I think is fantastic. It was also great to see that you know, what you see is what you get. Um, and I never thought I would hear a Baroness drop the F-bomb either. I'm Cathy Walker. Join me on the next episode of Raise That Up when I will be speaking to breast cancer surgeon and breast cancer survivor, Dr. Liz O'Riordan. Because I've looked after women with breast cancer, I knew exactly what the future held for me. And that was chemotherapy, a mastectomy, radiotherapy, 10 years of drugs to stop it coming back. I'll see you next time. I thought what's going through her was that's what we're giving, isn't it? As a parent, we're giving our love. Raise her up.